0: Lord, thank you for this moment that we have before your word. We pray that this will be a moment where we will be re astonished at what you've done in sending Christ. Father, I speak to people who are familiar with the story. Lord, may there be a new shining moment when we see more clearly your glory. And Lord, that we would live more fully for your purposes. So search us, Lord. Uh, see where we need uh, your word in this moment, and we are confident that you speak. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. So turn in, uh, if you have your Bibles with you, Isaiah chapter uh, 9 is where we're going to be looking. Uh, I'm just going to be in there for just a moment. I'm doing a series on just Isaiah's Christmas. Isaiah's Christmas. Do you know that the book of Isaiah is the most quoted book in the New Testament, from the Old Testament? And I don't know if you know this, but Isaiah 61 uh, contains portions, portions of 61 are used by Jesus uh, many, many times uh, in his ministry. So Isaiah is quite, quite a book, and we'll be unpacking a few ideas from there. Well, it's quite a time, isn't it? Uh, This whole thing uh, of Christmas, uh, what happens at the mall, and what happens in, in our culture at large, and uh, can be quite quite confusing at times I was reading a bit about the history of gift giving um, back in the days of uh, Dickens and old England and the idea that you might um, give us maybe a little loaf of bread to, to children or a small little gift to someone during this very very humble thing uh, a handful of cranberries or <laughs> just something pretty simple and uh, boy has it more <laughs> Wow, uh, American Express got a hold of this. Uh, what what happened to this sweet little uh, exchange of cookies and cranberries and uh, little loaves of bread? Um, it's a confusing time, um, and I am always grateful uh, for the clarity that God has given me uh, to understand this time. I was um, commenting before the, the service uh, that um, really, as a kid who grew up in a... In a in a home that was um, was a little, un- we were just unclear uh, about w- what this was all about. There was no real specific Christian doctrine ever taught in our home. I love my parents very much. Um, and I remember as a kid watching the Charlie Brown Christmas. Um, and I mentioned mentioned this morning before church started, we had a conversation just talking a bit about how, is it Linus who reads? Is it Linus who reads Luke chapter 2, right? Well, quite, uh, that was the first time I'd ever heard, uh, assumed, that he was reading from the Bible. I missed I figured that out somehow. But uh, quite honestly, I was, uh, and think of all the millions of children, if that's still on for Christmas Eve or whenever it's shown. Um Really, that was the first time for me ever hearing um, something of the Chris- Christmas story. Uh, I'll share this story because I'm the, uh, the person has moved. Uh, I'm pretty sure they moved, but um, it's actually up here in one of these neighborhoods here nearby. Uh, I sort of miss one of the, the things that we would see as uh, our family gr- growing up with the last 20 years. This house finally sold, and so we no longer see the exhibit out on the lawn. Um, there, uh, there's a lot of inflatables now. I don't know if you notice this. There's inflatables, all the inflatables. Some lawns are just full of inflatables. If that's you, I'm sorry. I've offended you. Uh, but um, uh, there was one r- right up the street here um, that was really uh, intriguing. It was a, a six-foot-tall plastic Santa. Uh, I don't know if I mentioned this before. but and, he, he and his fingers were going up, kind of like a disco thing, kind of a John Travolta thing, you know. And he's kind of pointing up, and then above him, and this is outside on the lawn, and above him, uh, under the, the sill of the, the roof there, um, the overhang, was a disco ball and a light on the disco ball. And so as you drive by, you'd have, you know, you'd have this thing going on. Um, and so we called him Disco Santa uh, as a kid growing up, and, and I miss him because the people moved. So I, I'm disoriented. Uh, I don't know what season it is without... Without disco Santa, um, but um, it really does speak to um, a bit of our time, doesn't it? That um, that there's an increasing secularization of our culture, and for us, we say, "Well, that is the way it is." We can certainly do what we can to influence our culture, but we, as a church, can be our own culture. The gospel comes to create a culture, a counterculture. And uh, so today, we look for a moment at this text, Isaiah 9. I have some questions to guide us today. But something was tragically wrong with God's people at the time Isaiah 9 was put together. Isaiah ministered to Two kingdoms. One was in the south called Judah, and the other is in the north called Israel. It's a little confusing. But but after Solomon, the kingdom divided. And Isaiah is writing in the 720s, 850s, 720s, 750s, something like that, of, of Israel's time. Uh, some question about exactly when he's writing. But he's writing to the north, and he's writing to the south. And here he's writing to the south and um, he's telling them that there's going to be a coming redeemer. There's going to be a coming redeemer and he's going to be one of David's sons. And the government is going to be upon his shoulder. And uh, I'm sure to the original audience that heard the word government... They probably uh, had a sense of relief. The king at the time was King Ahaz. And um, King Ahaz had led Judah, little Judah, astray. He had brought the nation into idolatry. He was kind of a nervous character. That's how I see him. He was always making these alliances and deals with the bigger nations around. And at one point, uh, Ahaz... um, Robs the, what's called the temple treasury, where gold is stored, and he basically robs it and pays off this massive kingdom called Assyria, and that holds holds them back for a while. Eventually, they come in and attack, and that's actually r- described in Isaiah 8, and they uh, they come in and uh, the imagery is, is of a river coming right up to the neck of Judah. That's Isaiah's excuse me, that's a serious um, uh, invasion. Let me ask you a couple questions about this text. It's a familiar text. I want to come at it from a couple different angles. First of all, what kind of personal government do you have apart from Christ? What kind of personal government do you have or would you have if you didn't have Christ? And secondly, I want to talk about the imagery of this darkness, the yokes and the battle, uh, the imagery there that's a little bit strange. We'll talk about that for a moment. Um, and then, how does God's zeal? Remember, at the very end of verse seven, it says that the zeal of the Lord accomplishes this—the coming of David's final son. The zeal of the Lord accomplishes this. How does the zeal of the Lord relate to you every every day? Well, look around for a moment uh, at your your circumstances, the, the life that we we the, the cultural moment we find ourselves in, and as we ask this question about people's personal government, how do people function? Not a lot of people are looking up uh, for guidance. People are looking within for guidance. If we didn't have Christ as our king, we would be looking within for guidance for everything. We would be looking in to try and find some truth within us to make sense of our lives. When you think about your own personal Government, in other words, how you are organized, how you manage your life. Think about the idea that you would if you didn't have Christ's government over you. Think about how you would have only just choices in life that you would hope would work out for you. All you'd really have is the choices that you can make. You really can't control much of anything, can you? When these people hear that there's going to be a new government, they realize that God has to bring this about. They're not powerful enough to do it. Governments are vitally important for the health of a nation. And also governments are important for individuals and for a church. The modern world has given up on any kind of transcendent order. There's nothing out there. It's all in here. I read recently a journal, an online journal, of a woman who was dying of breast cancer, and she writes these words. The title of her uh, essay is called "How to Die in Style," and she writes these words coming from a just again a, a secular viewpoint. She says, I believe everyone holds the key to their own personal happiness. And then she writes, no matter how dire your circumstances, you control your mindset, attitude, and how you handle things. It is entirely up to you whether you take a positive or negative approach to life and death. There, that encapsulates, encapsulates our Our current moment, I believe, everyone holds the key to their own personal happiness. The biblical view of things is much different. And that is that we can't control anything in our lives, really. The one who gives us breath is giving us breath. The beat in our chest, our heart. We owe everything to God. We are not our own In Job chapter 1, when Job has lost his family, he says that the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. But we have the current view is everyone holds the key to their own personal happiness. Like Judah, we have no control. We face the harsh realities of a very brutal world. This is the season of longing. And certainly, God is answering the longings of Judah at the time when he promises that one of David's sons is coming. If we don't have Christ as the governor of our lives, we have no place to gaze, no place to draw wonder, no place for transcendent order. We have just our limited attempts to try and control our lives. Our anger, perhaps, toward coworkers or our spouse; the impatience we we express toward our children; we have just sort of trying to find satisfaction in our work. We have just ourselves. And those of you who are older, young people kind of hear this and go, "Well, I can set my goals and I can I can achieve and I can get and I can I can uh, get what I want out of life." Those of us who are older know goals are great. Achievement is fine. Success, sure. But you also realize that it comes with something that you have to bear the weight of that, that it cannot actually satisfy you. What God gives his people here is a government that is deeply satisfying. Why do I say that? Well, it's a government like David's government. What did David do? He protected the borders he moved israel into a place of peacefulness so that's really the standard of a good king in the in the old testament does this king bring peace does this king bring order and that's as simple as it is what does jesus do he brings peace and he brings order into our lives he conquers our enemies he creates a peace a peaceful place. He creates a a place to dwell. Now, this final David is the one who, through his life, death, resurrection, and his ascension, is governing now. This is central to our belief as a church, in fact, even our government as a church. We gather not in hopes that Jesus will reign someday, some people actually have, well, he gets to reign for a 1,000 years at the end of the age. We, we think that's a little bit odd. That the idea, uh, this comes from Revelation 20, the idea is that it's an extended, long period of time that begins with the ascension of Jesus. And so what we believe is that Christ is reigning now. And one book that we have just to look at is the book of Acts. If you want to figure out, well, is Jesus really king? How does this all work? There's Satan, there's evil, there's sin. How does this all work? Well, read the book of Acts, and you'll see that Christ is the risen king, sending the Spirit, empowering his apostles through the preaching of the word. And Christ is king, and the kingdom is growing. So we just all you need is the book of Acts to see, wait a minute, Jesus is not in some doctor's lounge waiting for some time period to come. It is ha- it's happening now. And if, if in our personal government we don't have Christ as our governor, as the king, as the, the one ruling like David, then we are scrambling. We are scrambling to figure out order and peace in our own lives. Ahaz... Looked at this tiny moment in his life, this anxious king, this tiny little slice of 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 a few years, and what he did was he turned away from the living God, tried to manage it all himself, and worked deals manipulate, trying to manipulate peace through money and other means. He lived through the compulsions of his fears. Christ, in contrast, lived based on the Father's will. Ahaz used the resources of Judah in the temple to buy off the Assyrians. Christ used His own body to purchase us. So, just again, just think about this. Pretty simple idea here. Do you see yourself under a government? I mean, do you see, you're Americans here. Uh, well, if they're there, they are uh, by the people and for the people, and we put them in there, right? Well, do you imagine things differently for you as a believer? That God in his grace didn't wait around for you to vote Jesus in. That this this is the from eternity, this appointed king has come. That we were always, as human beings, meant to have a mediator who mediates a kingdom. God, the second of the Trinity, second person of the Trinity. This is what God always intended. And so, I just it's more of a sort of general exhortation. Do you see yourself as under a government? If you're a member of the church, you are saying, I need to be under the government of the church the government of Christ ultimately so just a, just an opening where would you be without this where think imagine where would you be without this this loving kind gracious governing jesus over your life let's take a look just for a moment this leads us to the second idea why the imagery of darkness and the yoke and the battle Notice in verse 9, excuse me, verse 6, it says, For unto us a child is born. Now, that little word for is connecting to all that's gone on before, right? So, in verse 6, For unto us a child is born, it's a conclusion about what's happened before. Now, what has been set up? What's been described? What's been uh, described? What Isaiah has been describing are moments are moments that can be described as joyful or decisive, right? So Isaiah is weaving together metaphors. What is it like when God comes through? For unto us a child is born. Okay, what are you referring to? God comes through by restoring former glory. They are a people who are oppressed by other nations and by bad kings. And yet what Isaiah does is he presents here in for instance in verse 5 he says every boot of the trampling of a, of the trampling warrior. Do you see that there? What's that to do with advent? Like what is what's going on there? Well, it's describing the scenes after a decisive battle. Think of this, you know, smoke smoldering and um, you think of soldiers walking across, you know, and kind of checking things out. Well, it's a, a decisive battle has happened, and the only thing left is sort of to burn stuff up. That's the imagery that Isaiah uses. A decisive battle has, has taken place, and it's time for rejoicing. Joy because a decisive battle has taken place, or joy because a great harvest has taken place. Look at verse 3. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice with you as with joy at the harvest. And then again, a mention of the spoil of war. Look at verse 2. The people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shined. Isaiah is weaving metaphors, decisive battles, joy in harvest. It's, it's a, the, the heart is being overwhelmed. Now, all those are images of what? What is it like to have a son announced? What's it like to have a, the great son of David uh, arriving? What's it like? It's like a decisive battle. It's like joy at the harvest. It's like a great light shining in the darkness. That's what it's like. And then verse 6, For unto us a child is born. So that imagery sets up that there's going to be a future deliverance of God's people. There's going to be a future harvest of joy. There's going to be a time when people, God's people are going to look and see that God has acted, acted decisively for them in establishing the great son of David in the future. This is the, the deliverance that's yours in Christ. This leads us then to the third question. How does God's zeal relate to me in the day-to-day of my life? Look at verse 7, how beautiful it is. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David, over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. How does this happen? Look at the very end of verse 7. The zeal of the Lord hosts will do this. So God's great desire, God's energy, God's strength produces this. And what does he he bring our way? He brings this one who is called the Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. In the ancient world, particularly the ancient Jewish world, when you used a name of a person that was almost always reflecting on their character, their person. So it didn't just distinguish them as, you know, as, that's that person's name, that's this person's name. It distinguished them in their character. So the character of Jesus is described. He is one who counsels well. He gives us good wisdom. He gives us strength in the title, Mighty God. He gives us fatherly love and fatherly care, everlasting Father, and, of course, the peace that is so desperately needed. Jesus is intimately, Jesus Jesus as the Son of God, is intimately acquainted with the counsels of God from all eternity. And he gives this counsel to, to us. He is our counselor by the Spirit who moves among us right now. He is good, in his wisdom, in his good, in his plans toward you. He is the mighty God. Through the Spirit, there is nothing that God cannot do toward you for your good. Hebrews 7.25, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him. Think of that power, to save forever. Everlasting Father, he's the father of life. He's the one behind all the goodness, thinking as a good father would. Prince of peace. We think of justification, that being justified, we now have peace with God, declared righteous through faith alone. So much could be said here. God's zeal relates to me in what Christ has done for me. God, Colossians 2.13 says that he has made you alive together with him. He brought you out of a state of death and brought you to life. God's zeal to bring the rule of Christ over you and in you, God's zeal made you alive together. Theologians call this regeneration. Colossians 2.13. God has made you alive together with Him. He placed me in the body of Christ. God in his power, his zeal, has brought me under this new government, this new care, this very purposeful care. Also, God's zeal relates to me in what God is doing through me presently. He's united me to Christ and to his church. I'm growing. He's united me to Christ and his church, and I'm learning what it means to work out my baptism and this new life that's been given to me. He's united me to Christ and his church, and I'm continuing to feed by Christ in the Lord's Supper in order to grow in grace. I'm united to Christ by this zeal and his church, and the Spirit is working to compel me to go, Matthew 28, and make disciples. God's zeal has brought me to Christ, brought me to Christ, who reveals to me that all authority Jesus said is given to him in heaven and on earth. Christ continually works toward me. This zeal toward uh, this zeal established a relationship with God, and He continually corrects me. He disciplines me as a son and as a daughter. This discipline is actually a sign that I am adopted. It's a sign that I desire to to come to God like the prodigal who began to see that they had sinned against heaven and earth and to confess this to their father. God is ultimately restoring our world through the announcement of of this son. Are you tempted to despair because you sense your life is out of order? Look upon this text and be encouraged. Do you despair because there's inner turmoil, confusion, or compulsions that rule you? God in his grace understands all those things. And the promise of of verse 7 is, the increase of his rule, his government over you, will, will continue. And that's for our good. God's zeal toward you is your hope and not your strength, and not your own strength. And may this hope flood your heart today for the greater son of David is at work in you. Let's pray. Father, we pray for the increase of Christ's government in us. Lord, do we really have a king who's on a throne right now? Lord, was this the intent when, when you sent your son, beyond sentiment, beyond, beyond the just the emotion, Lord, this is remarkable. You are re, you are remaking us under a new, gentle, loving rule. under Under Jesus, Lord, we come to you. And we ask that. His wonder would be made more more real to us. His counsel would be made more precious to us. His might might be made more reliable to us. And his fatherly love, Father, may we may we relax and accept his care. And so we love you, Lord. We thank you for your care for us. You've given us the word of God today. You give us the Lord's Supper. You give us all good things. We ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen.